So, good morning. Thank you for the invitation. It's a great joy for me to be here and be able to share the Word of God uh, with you. Uh, it's great to be at Sunset Bible. Uh, I've got to know uh, Jay through European Leadership Forum, which is, in my view, the most strategic evangelical work going on in Europe. Uh, European Leadership Forum has as its uh, vision to renew the biblical church and re-evangelize Europe by uniting, equipping, and resourcing evangelical leaders. And uh, every year in May, we have this huge gathering with uh, uh, six, seven, eight hundred uh, evangelical leaders from all over Europe, from, from 40 different countries coming together um, for training and encouragement and, and, and teaching and community building, relationships building. And then during the year, there are so many events going on in terms of uh, mentoring and specific trainings in, in specific uh, areas. And uh, we are so thankful that uh, Jay is part of the work and is blessing us, uh, coming over and help us. And uh, if you want to know more about European Leadership Forum, there is this brochure just outside the door. We are uh, constantly uh, looking for volunteers. Uh, the, the work wouldn't be able to, to function without a, quite a, a huge number of American volunteers coming over to, uh, to help us and make the whole work uh, uh, possible. That has been such a huge blessing for, for Europe. So uh, take a look at uh, this brochure and... Uh, Talk with Nathan or Scott or uh, myself uh, if you have questions about the European Leadership Forum. <clears throat> so far this morning, we, we have been in the Old Testament, uh, Exodus and the Psalms. Now we're moving into the New Testament and, some, uh, and a very dramatic chapter at the end of the book of Acts, uh, Acts 26, and this famous meeting between the Jewish king Agrippa, the Roman governor Festus, and the apostle, uh, and the apostle uh, Paul. Uh, so if you have a Bible, turn to uh, Acts 26. Uh, and as we, we open our Bibles... Uh, just let me, me pray. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you have given us access uh, to, your, to your word and that we can freely uh, read it and study it and proclaim it this morning. Um, and I pray that, uh, that you will speak to us, that you will encourage us uh, to follow you and that you will strengthen our faith and our commitment to you. Thank you that you are so committed to us and that you have shown that. Uh, uh, on the cross and in the resurrection. I praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. We will study Acts 26, but I need to say something about the background for this, uh, this event. If you turn to chapter 25, it says this. The next day, Agrippa, that is King Agrippa, and his sister, Bernice, 
came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city of Caesarea. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. This is really surprising. What on earth is Paul doing in this kind of setting with all the elite persons of Caesarea? Paul, of course, was a, a highly educated Jew, but, but by becoming a disciple of Jesus, he had become poor and dismissed by many. He's a nobody. When he's brought in here, he is bleak. He's been in prison for two years. What on earth is, is he doing in this prominent gathering of the Roman elite. If you study commentaries on the book of Acts. They say, uh, they say this. Verse 23 describes a state occasion. Complete with full regalia and much pomp and circumstance. A judicial hearing has been turned into royal entertainment and theater. The term, the Greek term that's using here means with pomp and it refers in part to the grand entrance Agrippa and Bernice made into the audience chamber. After them, various other guests of honor came in, including military tribunes and leading men from the city of Caesarea, who would probably be almost exclusively, if not exclusively, Gentiles. Being a Swede, I think of of this, it, it sounds like the, the Nobel Prize winner's famous dinner in Stockholm, where the elite is invited and no one else, and it's broadcasted live on television, and it's really pomp and circumstance. And in this midst, they are bringing in Paul, chained with a Roman soldier. So, what is the background? How does this happen? So, we have the Apostle Paul. This brilliant man. The scholar Andy Wright says, you can compare him to Socrates in terms of intelligence. Now, he had become a follower of Jesus. Proclaiming that the crucified Jesus of Nazareth is actually the promised Messiah. And now he has been imprisoned. How did that happen? Well, if you study the book of Acts from chapter 20, it says that Paul and his team went up to Jerusalem. And then a long chain of events started to unfold. Paul goes up to the temple to worship God. Peacefully, he enters the temple. There some of his enemies recognize him. And they are accusing him of bringing Gentiles into the temple. That's a false accusation. But that causes a lot of turmoil in the temple. So the temple guards are pushing out all the people. And the, the, uh, the entrance to the temple is closed. And they bring, they bring Paul to the fortress of Antonio. And there, 
the crowd of people, uh, they managed to keep them silent for some time. And people, uh, Paul asks uh, the commander, uh, uh, the commander Lucius, if he can speak to the crowd and explain that he has done nothing. Um, nothing wrong in the temple. He was just there to, to pray. Yes, he's, he's allowed to, um, uh, to speak. And he starts to speak. But a few minutes later, the whole crowd is in uproar again. And they are shouting and screaming. And they are throwing sand up in the air. And it's total chaos because they want to... Basically, uh, get rid of Paul, kill him. So uh, the commander Lucius had to bring Paul into uh, the fortress to uh, save him. And then, of course, he wants to find out what Paul is accused of to understand the situation. So he keeps Paul in the fortress. And the next day, he calls in the Jewish leaders. Help me to... Explain what this is about. Why all this turmoil around Paul? So there is a kind of hearing. But that hearing begins with that one of the members of the Sanhedrin, uh, actually the high priest, orders the soldiers to punch Paul in the face. So obviously that hearing is a total, totally corrupt. Paul realizes this will not be a hearing where I'm I'm, I'm being able to present the, the true case. You, you think of a, of a trial where the first thing that happens is that the accused person is hit in the face during the trial. So, so Paul realizes, I need to find a way out of this. And the Sanhedrin was comprised of two different religious groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And Paul knew, of course, all the theological intricacies of, of Judaism. So in order to come away from this corrupt hearing, he throws in a, a theological issue. Namely, he says, I believe in the resurrection from the dead. Now that is a huge point of contention between Sadducees and Pharisees. The Sadducees did not believe in any, any bodily resurrection, and the Pharisees did. And then the whole hearing turns into a battle between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and Lucius, the commander, had to bring, bring out Paul. Okay. But Paul is still kept, um, uh, you can say, in prison by, by Lucius. The Jewish leaders are frustrated. Uh, their first attempt became a, <laughs> a, a fiasco by them fighting with themselves. So now some of them are committed to not eat and drink for 40 days until we have killed Paul. So now there's a real death threat against Paul. A relative to Paul managed to get that knowledge that they were conspiring against Paul. And he tells Paul and Paul tells Lucia. And Lucia's uh, ordered then several hundreds of of soldiers and a huge number of, uh, of, um, uh, of men on horses to during the night transport P, uh, Paul secretly from Jerusalem down to Caesarea to, just to keep him safe. 
So now, Paul finds himself a prisoner in Herod's palace in Caesarea. <sighs> totally unplanned from Paul. He went up to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles and to go up and pray in the temple. And now he's imprisoned, falsely accused, and he's sitting in Caesarea. There, the, uh, uh, the, the Roman governor, his name is Felix. So a successor of Pontius Pilate. Uh, so he, uh, the, the uh, governor is Felix. And Felix, he knows some things about the way and he's a little bit intrigued by uh, this messenger. So he speaks to Paul. But when Paul challenges uh, him about the coming judgment and about turning away from evil, he does not want to listen anymore. He understands that Paul is, is not guilty. Paul is innocent. But he wants to have a good relationship with the Jewish leaders because he constantly will have to deal with them. So he does not want to release Paul, which would be the, the fair thing to do. But his priorities is political. I need a good relationship with, with the Jewish leaders, not, uh, uh, not justice. And in, he, in his heart, Luke tells us that he hopes that Paul would, will bribe himself out of the prison. But of course, Paul will not do that. So then, Felix is just letting Paul sitting in prison for two years. He's rotten away. His heart is burning for spreading the gospel and helping and training the Christians. And now he's rotting away in a prison in Caesarea. Can you imagine the frustration within Paul in this situation? And there are some uh, groups of people coming from Jerusalem down to, to try to, um, uh, to deal with the issue. So the high priest Ananias and, and, and a lawyer called Tertius is, um, is dealing with Felix and have, uh, 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 hoping that they can have a hearing and condemn Paul. After And there we, we can read some, uh, some dialogues between Paul and Felix and his wife Drusilla. After some time, uh, Felix is out of the, the picture and a new governor is put in place in Caesarea. That is Festus. So he inherits this, pres uh, this, um, uh, this person in prison from his predecessor. Felix had not solved the issue. Now Festus is there and he has Paul on, on his hands. What to do? He travels up to Jerusalem to talk, talk to the Jewish leaders. He... Uh, says, you can come down to Caesarea and we can try to deal with, with, this, uh, 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 with this man there. They come down, the high priest and, uh, and his team, and they say, say to Paul, we want you to come up to Jerusalem and be tried by us there. At that point, Paul has had enough. He knows that if he goes up to Jerusalem to be tried there by the Jewish leader, that will not be a fair 
trial. So he has one last trump card. Paul appeals to Caesar. He was a Roman citizen. And he had that opportunity to have his case brought before Caesar himself. Because Paul realizes, I will not have a fair trial in Jerusalem. And if I'm not appealing to Caesar, I will continue to rot away in this prison. I have to do something. So he appeals to Caesar. So we read in Acts 29. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I'm now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I'm guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. So he is obliged to send Paul on to Caesar. So this is the background to, uh, to the text we are going to read now, to this dinner with pomp and all the uh, mighty persons of Caesarea. It is a special occasion. So it's the Jewish king Agrippa and his famous sister Bernice who is coming. Bernice, according to uh, ancient sources, was a kind of scandal beauty, a kind of Marilyn Monroe or Kim Kardashian. She had a, a number of affairs with, with very famous men. So there was a lot of rumors going around uh, her And you know, th- that kind of people causes a lot of public interest. Uh, and Bernice was that kind of person. And her brother was a Jewish king. And the two of them are now, now coming on an official visit to Caesarea. And this becomes very important for Festus. Paul has appealed to Caesar, but that puts... Festus in a very odd situation. Now he has to write to the emperor and explain why he has not himself been able to solve this problem, but why he is handing over the problem to Caesar. That's a huge embarrassment for Festus. So the text says, Acts 25, Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man, Paul. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it's unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charges against him. So Festus has realized that the charges here are some theological Jewish issue. I don't understand them. Maybe this Jewish King Agrippa can help me so I can write something meaningful to the emperor. That's the background. 
Sorry for this long history le- lesson. We're now going to read this speech. And this is a speech that was well prepared. Paul knew on beforehand that he would be called before Festus. We can be, be, uh, be sure of that. That, that was planned. Uh, this state visit with Agrippa and that Paul was invited to give his defense before uh, this, um, uh, in, in this situation. And again, if you study the commentaries here, they say, and this is Ben Witherington, this speech is perhaps the most elegant of all of the speeches and acts, reflecting careful preparation and, and attention to elements of style. We are perhaps meant to think that unlike the case when he spoke to the Jews in the temple precincts, here Paul has had time to reflect and prepare a rhetorically persuasive piece. Paul is here an orator of some distinction, as is shown by his excellence in, <coughs> in rhetoric. Okay, let's, let's read this well-prepared speech by Paul. Then Agrippa said to Paul, so now we are in chapter 26. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. And especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our twelve tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions, We all fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus who you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen And will see of me. I will rescue you you from your own people. And from the Gentiles. 
I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and I testify to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Messiah would suffer. And as the first to rise from the dead. Would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul. He shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things. And can I, I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of these has escaped his notice. Because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long. I pray that God, not only you, but all who are listening to me today, may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with the governor and Bernice, those sitting with them, After they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. That is the word of the Lord. So, what is Paul saying? Well, Concretely, he has to defend himself. That is the main aspect uh, of this occasion. He needs to show that he's innocent. He should be released. So what do he do? He starts with his own life. So we are giving a kind of biography of Paul. He tells us about his background as a Pharisee. He tells us about the dramatic appearance of Jesus on the road to Damascus. He's called to be an apostle of Christ. And he then goes into the message about the Messiah that he's called to preach. And then it ends with this dialogue of Festus and Agrippa. I find it quite moving that Paul, he tells about his own life, but very quickly he moves his speech into a presentation of the gospel. Because that is the key agenda for Paul. Of course, his own future is important. He wants to be released. But he really takes this occasion as a possibility, not only to explain his own history, but to preach the gospel for this audience. If one tries to structure his message, I would say he has structured it around the message of hope. 
That is something that occurs several times in the text. It is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I'm in trial uh, today. That this hope that was promised to his ancestors, ancestors now has been fulfilled. And he quotes from Isaiah 32 that one day something will happen so God will open the eyes of people and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. This hope, Paul presents, uh, I would say, in this way. And since we're living in such a dark time, it's dark in many of our countries. It, it is really dark globally. We are in such a big need of a message of hope because so much of what, what we have hoped in terms of what politicians can do for us, what economy can do for us, in terms of what technology can do for us, that has failed. And we need to have a hope grounded in something different. And that is what Paul is proclaiming. He has a message of hope, which is a hope for all, not only for the Jewish people, but for Jews and Gentiles alike, for everyone on the globe, for the elite he's speaking to in Caesarea, and for the nobodies of this world. It is a hope for everyone, Jews and Gentiles alike. God has a heart for all of humanity. That is a hope for a radical liberation from darkness and the power of Satan. A liberation from the really deep root of all our problems. It is a message of hope that needs to be received personally. So you are not automatically connected to this hope. But we, each and every one of us, needs to repent from our sins and receive this message of hope personally. This message of hope is grounded in scriptures. It's promised by Moses and the prophets. It, it is the fulfillment of what God started to do with Abraham 2,000 years earlier. And the message that has been repeated from God. That one day something uh, absolutely life-changing will happen. Messiah will come. And Messiah... He will do what no one expected him to do. He will go to death, death for us. It's built on the death and resur resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. It's amazing. Paul, the natural thing for Paul would to have himself at the center of his message. Because this is the key opportunity for him to be freed from prison. But he makes Jesus the Messiah the key point of his message. And since he talks to a Jewish king, he can say, the Messiah I present to you is what the prophets and Moses have foretold us. That the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Now at this point... <clears throat> You have your fantasy with you. You see these fancy people dressed up. You see all their status. You see the, the beautiful table 
uh, with food they will, will eat. And then Paul, standing there, chained to a, a soldier. And he gives this speech and there's silence in the room. Everyone's looking at Paul. And when they have come to this point that Messiah was the first to rise from the dead, something happened. At this point, speaking about resurrection, at this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you insane. It's impossible to believe that a dead person come back to life. Now it becomes really interesting. What is Paul's response to this? Well, he could say, like quite a few Christians would say, yeah, that's true. If you use your mind, this is totally rubbish. Uh, of course, but, but we are religious people. We believe anyway. There are no reasons for it, but we, we just throw ourselves out into darkness and believe what is just unreasonable. But that is not what Paul is saying. Paul's attitude is very, very different. His response is, no, Festus, what I'm saying is true and reasonable. It's true that Jesus raised, uh, God raised Jesus from the dead, and it's reasonable. We should notice that Paul, he knew that this would be a touchy point. And already in verse 8, he has mentioned something about this. So I, I would say that Paul in his speech here used four arguments for his message. And the first argument for why it's true and reasonable, it's a worldview argument. In verse 8, he has tried to pave the way for the message of the resurrection by saying, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Why is that unreasonable to think? Of course, if there is a creator God, who created the universe, he can, of course, raise a person from the dead. There's nothing in the mind that goes against that. Now, this is so similar to many of the com contemporary discussions. Secular Westerners they are saying as Festus, this is unreasonable. Do you believe that the dead person can come back to life? Sure, it's unreasonable if there is no God. Nature cannot throw back a dead body and make it alive. Of course, I totally agree. But if there is a God, and that is the starting point for the Christian faith, there is a God who has created the universe. And he can, of course, raise someone from the dead. So that's a worldview argument. For why we believe in the resurrection. But Paul did not stop there. He then turns to Agrippa. And every time I read this and talk about this, it gives me uh, goosebumps. He can turn to the king Agrippa and say, The king is familiar with these things. And I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice. Because... It was not done in a corner. It, Jesus, that's a historical person. His life was a public life. Agrippa knew about Jesus and the crucifixion and the tomb. And the witnesses that claimed to have seen him. 
So Paul turned to Agrippa. The king here knows. This is public open truth. And Agrippa agrees. He is not rejecting what Paul is saying there. Here is another big area for us. When we, de- when we defend the resurrection of Jesus, there are historical evidences. Someone in, in the break here asks, say, oh, you are an apologist. Uh, do you do presuppositional apologetics or do you do evidential apologetics? That's kind of two different schools of how you defend it and explain the, the faith. And I would say, we should not put those things in contrast. We should do both. Paul was like a presuppositional in his first point. Underlining the basic presupposition you start with. If there is a God, then you can believe in resurrection. But then he moved on to evidences that both he and Agrippa knew about. And he could say, those confirm what I'm saying. Uh, Thirdly, since he had a Jewish audience, or at least Agrippa was a uh, Jew and uh, Bernice, he pointed to scripture. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And this is what the prophets and Moses said, that one day a suffering servant will come, and it is through him we will receive life. This is the fulfillment of what God promised all through scriptures. And that is the third argument we have, that our belief in Jesus is anchored in the promises of the Old Testament, in all those fascinating prophecies that no human mind had could put together, but they all fit in a beautiful pattern to the historical person of Jesus. And then Paul has a fourth argument. He refers to his own experience. He has met the living Lord. He has met him in a a very dramatic way on the road to Damascus. And he was not disobedient to the vision that was given to him from heaven. His personal experience of God. So how should we defend and explain our faith? I think we should take Paul as a model. And we can talk about it, dialogue about it from those four different perspectives. There's a worldview perspective, our starting point. We believe there is a creator God, and that makes all the difference. There are, there are historical arguments, because Christianity is historical faith about what has happened in human history. And we can refer to history and to the historical sources, the biographies of Jesus, which we have in the, in the Gospels. And we can refer to scripture as a whole and how it fits together and the prophecies And hopefully we have a testimony ourselves, what God has done in our lives, how God has drawn us into fellowship with himself so we can tell about the personal experience of of how our lives have changed. Festus interrupted Paul's speech. And then we have this dialogue first with Festus, Paul and Festus. It's true and reasonable. And then with Paul and Agrippa. The king here can confirm it. 
And then we have Paul's conclusion. I appeared to, uh, uh, I appealed to your fantasy. Can you put it on that once again? Try to mentally place yourself in the room with all the dignitaries and then the the chained Paul in, in the midst. He's speaking to people who are really successful. People who are lucky in this world. They have power, they have influence, they have status, they have money. They have everything that so many of us are looking for and dreaming about. And what is he saying to them? What is he saying to them? I pray to God. Not only that you, Agrippa, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am. That is a person who knows Christ. Because that trumps all their achievement. But then, of course, he has to accept for my chains. <laughs> he does not wish that everyone should be chained to a Roman soldier. What a perspective on life to be able, in that situation, to look people in the eye, all those successful people, standing there bleak, poor, chained, say, I wish, I pray to God that all of you would be like me, in the sense that you know Christ and the hope you can have in him. What a testimony. What a testimony from the Apostle Paul. So we see Paul. He's an apologist. He's really arguing for the truth of the message. But he's an apologist with the heart of an evangelist. That is his goal with everything he is doing. He wants to present Christ and draw people into fellowship with Christ. Lord, we thank you for what you did so powerfully through the life of the Apostle Paul. We thank you for his testimony, and it moves our heart when we we see his love for you, Lord, his commitment to you. Uh, And Lord, now I pray for us who are here that you will touch our hearts and that you in our different small circumstances will help us to give a testimony similar to that of Paul. Pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen.